Well, uh, Cody Sanchez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no worries. So let me give you this intro, and I tried to pare this down because you have so much stuff. Uh, Cody Sanchez has been a journalist, institutional investor for Goldman Sachs, a cannabis investor, uh, founder at Contrarian Thinking, and co-founder of Unconventional Acquisitions. Uh, she specializes in sweaty and boring small businesses. So that means like laundromats, car washes, vending machines, ice vending machines, basically stuff that requires one or zero employees. That's right. And we brought her here today because she has a huge newsletter and a large social media following, and we're going to see how she built it so we can copy her. And uh, she's also a master at raising money through basic cold emails. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I don't know about master, but we've done a lot of it. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay, so you always talk about unsexy businesses. That seems yeah. to be like like your hook. Yep. What, what's an unsexy business? Well, I think about it like private equity, if you're an investor. That basically means we take businesses that are not in the public markets, not stock-based businesses, and we invest in them. Mm. So for instance, I have like, I don't know, 25 businesses or something like that. Mm -hmm. One of them's a landscaping business. Business. One of them is a business that's only focused on, for instance, uh, doing retail distribution. Like they're the trucks that actually put stuff in the Walmarts, let's say. And so these are the, the everyday businesses that like most millionaires actually made their money on, you know? guy who lives next door to me, he made a bunch of his money and he has a lot of it selling sprinkler systems. So mm. you don't have to be a rocket scientist or want to create the next Tesla, in my opinion, to make a bunch of money. So you, it, it's kind of funny because I know you through the internet world, no. but you're not really invested in too many. Now you have some internet businesses, but most of your actual income comes from all these like offline things. What's the split in the world if you if you know of like offline stuff versus online? Is that a thing? Yeah, for sure. Like in the actual world? Yeah. Well, I think that's hard because I, I mean, you could say this. You could say that 47% of all people are employed by small businesses. Small businesses are predominantly mom and pop based shops. Mm -hmm. And most of them do not have a social media presence or an online presence that's even significant. In fact, most small businesses, I think only about 35% of them have a Yelp page and should. So uh, I would say that most of the people in the U.S. are employed by small businesses, and there are definitely more small businesses than there are huge tech companies. It's just mm. we don't read about them in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they're, they're unsexy, as yeah, you say. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, so you've parlayed this somehow into the internet, right? So you, you're like offline, but online. Yeah. Um, how did that start? Why, why did you start doing that? Were you always doing that or no uh actually i mean we met years and years ago right yeah. uh when i just randomly decided to come to sumo con from our mutual friend noah's well i, don't, I wasn't even friends with noah at the time i didn't even know him i'm not friends with him yeah. <laughs> <That's smart. laughs> um, but anyway um at that time i hadn't done anything online and most people in finance don't because there's all these rules about conflicts of interest and being on the internet and you have all these regulations that can get you in trouble so for most of my career i did nothing on the internet no blogs, no speaking about anything. Um, but then quite honestly, I started to get bored. And I remember one CEO of the company I was at the, at the time said like, we get rich quietly here. That's what we do, we get rich quietly. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like that much of fun. Like I'd rather get rich with a bunch of buds. That sounds like a good time. And like, if I could figure out how to do it, maybe I could talk to other people about doing it. And so I started off as a journalist, so I kind of couldn't help but write something. Uh -huh. And uh, and then I realized it's really easy now because I'm not tech savvy where I can write on the internet with things like Substack or WordPress or whatever without having to know how to code. And where did where did you start? Uh, I started in January of 2020 and created something called Contrary and Thinking. Wait, and that was your first foray online? Yeah. Did you like not have social media before that? I had social media, that's true. Yeah, I had Instagram. I had I don't didn't really have a Twitter account, but mostly just 
just Instagram, I guess, and posted stuff that I thought was interesting. Um, but I didn't have any other blogs. And and back in the day, I did like three podcast episodes, probably like most people do in uh-huh. podcasts. Yeah. And then I got in trouble with my company. And so they told me to shut it down. It was actually uh-huh. funny. There was like me, my mom, not even my dad listened to me. And, uh, and the firm I was at, multi-billion dollar business, I was doing pretty well there, relatively high, ran Latin America. And they were like, you got to shut it down because you might move the market. And I'm like, there's three people listening. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> moving any market. Um, but yeah, my first real foray was January 2020. And then prior to that, I messed around with social media and stuff. And I invested in a couple internet businesses, but never really built one myself. So you were working as a co- at a company as an investor. You weren't privately doing this. Uh, so when I, well, my last deal, I was a partner at a private equity firm in cannabis. So I was part of the management company. And then before that, I ran an international investment business. Um, and that was in Latin America. And then what about all the, like the laundromats and all that kind of, like the unsexy business? When did that start? That started, well, I've been doing that for probably 10 years, uh-huh. but quietly, not telling anybody about it. I mean, I, d- I didn't think anybody would care if I bought a laundromat or not. Like That, yeah. that to me seems like super not appealing. Um, but I started buying them and doing, I did angel investing first, lost a bunch of money, didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> had no unfair access. And then I was like, wait a second, I kind of like to keep the money I make. So like maybe I could invest in stuff that isn't so hard to get into the right deals and I don't have to be as sophisticated. And so I said, well, hey, like I started buying, I bought a laundromat and then I bought part of a car wash company and then I bought into a plumbing company. And I was like, oh, these, it's like a PL. I can read it. I can understand what the business is doing and I could invest based on now and not dreams and maybe that'll turn into something. Where did that come from though? Like where, where did you get this idea? So, I mean, I yeah. have some friends that like bought storage units and stuff and they had like uncles yeah. in the industry. So they're like, oh, I, I get it. It, did you have some sort of family connection or did you have some sort of like model that you like, where did that come from? It's so strange. Yeah, I two two parts. I was in private equity and private equity basically does this for a living. So like, mm. you know, if you first of all, if you look at the Forbes 100 list, like the most concentration of billionaires are private equity managers. So I basically hmm. made millions and millions of dollars for other people in private equity. And then I was like, I don't really like these people I'm making all this money for. Like, couldn't I do it myself? And then I was like, no way, no way, not smart enough. And then I had my uncle Eb, to your point. <laughs> he owned a plumbing company called Eb Holmes Plumbing. And he turned like 75, 76 years old and he got a cancer scare and he kind of got worried, you know, that he should start rolling down this business, his plumbing business. And at the time I didn't know all this, but the business was doing like $3 million in profits, right? Mm-hmm. And um, small businesses you buy for two to three X their profits. So if he made three mil, we could buy that business theoretically for six to $9 million. Mm-hmm. And what did he do with the business instead of sell it? He shut it down because you know he was 75 years old. He didn't even know you could sell a business. He was tired, he had cancer. And that's what happens to most small businesses. They actually just get wound down. Hmm. And so when he told me this, I was like, what do you do? Like you definitely could have sold this business. And I thought, oh, I could probably do that. I could, I could help out an uncle Ed somewhere. Huh? Interesting. Um, I'm always fascinated by some of these small businesses because you, you never hear anything about them. And so you're just like, oh, 3 million profit a year. And you're like, wait, like that, that's higher than a lot of tech companies. Uh, they just, they just go, they, they're valued at a hundred million, but they might actually only make like a million dollars. And of that profit, what, what are you talking about? It's kind of hilarious. Um, totally and, agree. And so you're saying most people in the world actually get rich off of these types of businesses. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at Austin. Sure, Austin is a weird tech center 
for sure. But if you were to actually look at the people who, let's say, are the largest donors to politicians, which is always a fun way to figure out who has money, then you, and see how those people made their money in order to donate, you would find very normal businesses. You would find, I was talking to a guy yesterday, he's very wealthy here. He's one of the main providers of like shutters, uh, like here, and cabinetry. Um, one of the guys who came to my conference, I mean, he just bought a business that does $5 million in profit in garage cabinets. Um, and so they're everywhere because what do we need to use every single day are these hard assets. I mean, services that you wouldn't think anything of are the ones that we spend way more money on than we do on Slack each month, actually. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um, actually, when, when I first uh, started trying to meet rich people when I was in college, I used to crash parties. And I, I'd be like, what do you do? What do you do? And one of this, this guy that was throwing this huge, very, very fancy fundraiser, he ran a carpet store. And I was like, wait, a carpet store? And he's like, yeah, we were like the largest carpet, whatever, in like Austin or this area. And he was just a really rich dude from a carpet store. And it just blew my mind because I only thought like you could make money in tech. Yeah, I think it's everywhere. In fact, I, I think most people underestimate how much money is made in the boring. I mean, and, and quite honestly, I think the other interesting thing is this is just a good balance, you know? Mm. Like nobody thinks about the landscaping company or the yard maintenance company, but you pay the guy $100 every single month. Think mm. about how many tech companies do you pay $100 to every month? For years too. For, for your entire- For the exact owner. same yes, product. exactly. And then- Then you change. <laughs> exactly. And then imagine that you, you know, compare that to Netflix. Like, what are you paying Netflix? Like $4.99 a month or $7.99 a month? Mm. Uh, I might rather actually have the landscaping company um, on a micro scale, right? Maybe because I'm not big enough, you know, smart enough or whatever to build Netflix. So, so do you come in and apply marketing to these things? Is that what you do or you just buy it and don't do anything? Yeah. I mean, I think there's like a common misperception that like, uh, first of all, that I know how to run a fucking, uh, landscaping business better <laughs> than a landscaper. So I try to not come in with a ton of ego. Right. Um, but I, I actually think what you want to do is you just want to find good businesses and you want to buy them at reasonable prices and make sure they're going to continue to run as exactly as they are. Where most people get into trouble is they come in, they try to buy a business and they're like, we're going to turn this into the subscription service for lamps. And you're like, oh man, that's where you start to go sideways. So you really want to buy the boring business, keep it boring, and then you could tweak the dials on it a little bit. But you know, my analogy is like, when, you just redid a bunch of your house. When, it, when do you ever redo a house or flip a house and it's under budget and done faster than you think it's going to be done? Never. Never in the history of ever. So you don't go buy a crappy business and expect yourself to be able to flip it all the way first time. Mm. You want to buy almost like a bond, you know, you're like, I want this. I want to, I don't, does anybody buy bonds anymore? But like oh you know, back <laughs> in crypto the, now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't even count. But theoretically back in the day, you were like, this piece of paper will pay me 10% every month, no matter what. That's sort of the guarantee of a bond. And that's how I think about buying businesses. This boring business will pay me 2k a month for sure. And yeah, maybe more, but like, let's focus on the 2k for right now. Huh? Interesting. This sounds, it sounds kind of interesting. Okay. So here's, here's why it sounds interesting to me. We run a copywriting company and we help people like redo their advertising. So one of my favorite is when we redo local advertising. And here's the reason. It's so easy. It's so stupid easy. So for an internet business that wants to be like cold email templates and get that number one to Google, I'm like, okay, that's a lofty expectation. This is a long-term play. And then you could be dethroned at any given moment. However, for the offline businesses we do, it's usually like update your Google profile. 
update your Yelp profile, add three pictures, add a phone number. It's like shit you could do in five minutes on your phone. And literally that alone will make you stand out. And I remember helping a friend back. This is where I first learned this. A friend opened a couple automotive shops with, with a guy. And um, he was in charge of like doing the, the marketing. And you know what the marketing that we did was? We posted on Craigslist a couple times and we found an ad that worked. It was just like, if you have a Mercedes or BMW, come here. That's it. It was, it was that was the ad. And then um, we also got a lot of asked for reviews from the customers. And, be, yep. and, and the bar was so incredibly, stupidly low. I, I could not believe it. I didn't realize it was that low. And so like, you know, Bob's auto mechanic shop is not really like trying to, you know, go all full in on Google listings or anything like that. No. So if you're the one that does that, uh, you're going to have like 14 reviews, which is like way more than everyone else around in the area. That's exactly and, right. and that's what it was. And it just grew so far beyond. And then he opened up other local stores and we did this, the same type of marketing and it, it worked incredibly well. And that's why I'm kind of excited about like the local stuff. I'm like, the bar is so low for marketing. You There's should. None. I mean, if I was you, I, we talked to a lot of people about how to structure deals. I'm like a deal structuring junkie. I think it's so fun. It's like magic. And so like our other friend, Nick Ray, like called me and I'm like, oh no, you should never do this deal this way. This is the way you should do it. And he's like, oh God, I didn't know I could structure it this way. This is what you learn in private equity. It's like uh, the first time you learn a language and you're like, oh, there's such a nuance between one word and this other word, and like, this actually is ridiculous and this sounds much better. And it's the same thing with deal structuring. So with like you and your skill set here, if I was structuring deals for you, I would say you should never ever have boring businesses as clients. Nope. Why not? Because you should only have boring businesses as partners where you use your ability to increase their revenue and clients in the business to get you a percentage of the equity and profit share in a business. If you're gonna do a tech startup deal, you'll never get a profit share. It's like, here you go, if we sell, maybe you'll make some money, but maybe you'll be super diluted, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But in this business, you could go to a landscaper and say like, right now, man, you're making like $300,000 a year right now, right? Yep, okay, you have no marketing, nothing's happening here, I think I could increase that. If I increase your marketing over $300,000, I want, 10% or 25% or whatever of every dollar over 300K that I attribute to your business. And oh, by the way, I want that in perpetuity for equity in your business, but you're happy about it because you've only been doing 300K for the past two or three years anyway. You're never gonna get to the next level without me. So now it's like, you know, I don't know, Bob and Neville's landscaping company eventually <laughs> because you're able to bring in this marketing arm of it. Interesting, is, is this like a real deal that happens? No, for sure, it's called the revenue share or profit share model. Wow. Yeah. This, uh, no joke, this actually sounds kind of cool. It's a great, I mean, I've done it multiple times. I have a podcast production business that basically uh, we help a bunch of different clients run their podcasts, sort mm. of like you have someone here helping you with yours. Mm -hmm. And But this group takes the back end, does all the video editing, uploads it, whatever. And the way I got into this deal was the guy who runs it, his name's Jonathan. I was like, you're doing X. I think I could introduce you to a ton more people. If you do Y, I want to own 40% of the company. This is RCRD? Uh, no, they're called SFP. Oh, never mind. I tried to invest in one. They didn't let me. So I could <laughs> yeah, you could build the same thing. And so basically now I get a check in the mail every single month because I increased revenue by X and like we have strategic calls, but I don't do anything in the business. Huh. Interesting. So it's totally doable. I really like this. How do you find these businesses to buy? Is there like a site? Yeah, there is. So there's, um, like there's Flippa is the one that's most often for digital mm -hmm. products. 
and online businesses. There's Biz Buy Sell, which is sort of like MLS, the real estate site, but for small businesses. Mm -hmm. There's um, Empire Flippers. Yeah, Empire Flippers, I guess, was a little bit more like Zillow or Redfin, more refined than MLS. Um, and so a little bit more expensive. So there's a whole list of them. But quite honestly, the the magic is in doing your own deals with the people that are already in your network, mm. um, especially for your first couple of deals, because you're not really going to know what deal is better than another on a listing site. Mm-hmm. You have a lot, lot of competition. But the real magic would be like, oh, talk to my landscaper, actually, and tell him I want to do the copywriting for him. And so I want to structure this deal this way. Or like you see you have an older contractor or something who's coming to you know do stuff for your house and he's talking about how you want to retire and you're like, ooh, you want to try or interesting, what's your retirement plan? Like, are you going to sell the company? And if Neville was super handy, then maybe you buy that company from him and it all happens nowhere online. Hmm. Uh- my, I might actually do this. I'm going to yeah, like ask you about how to, you. yeah, this is, uh, one, I think it'd be a fun experiment Two, It doesn't sound like it's crazy expensive. No. Well, first of all, I mean, I do many deals for free. N- now I probably always give a little bit of cash just because I want people to know that I have some skin in the game, yeah. but I did many of my first deals for $0 because it was just a, you know, you can, you can increase your assets in a business or you can get free money or free equity in a business for really three reasons. One, you increase the revenue of the business overall. Two, you decrease the expenses of a business overall. Or three, you get in and structure it or operationalize a business. Like say Neville's copywriting course was a nightmare to run and Neville was about to end it. Like, And I came in and I'm like, I'm a really amazing COO. I can streamline everything for you, but you're going to give me some equity. Mm-hmm. And same thing if you could grow the business and same thing if you were like, God, our costs are out of control. I don't know where to cut them. I'm like, I could do that for you. And I'm going to take something on the back end for it. Huh. I love this. Yeah. Um, called value added deals. Interesting. Cause I've only usually done just tech stuff. Yeah. Those are the hardest to do in my opinion, because one, they're the most competitive. I mean, think about it this way in Silicon Valley today. one of my friends who's a partner at Sequoia told me something. He's like, um, I do not need any more money. Money has become a commodity to me. So much so, in fact, that we only take checks from nonprofits. I'm like, that's the most ass backwards thing I've ever heard. Mm. Like you guys are trying to make money, but you only anyway. And that's the world around us in tech is everybody's like trying to allocate all their money to tech. And it's become this competitive thing to even get into deals. Well, I always want to go where there's what I call a difference between narrative and numbers. So where is like the story, AKA this is boring, different than the numbers, which is like, I don't think zeros are boring. I like zeros. Mm-hmm. And so I want to find the arbitrage opportunity between the two. And that's private boring businesses. And then mm. it's slightly harder. Like you don't have to know how to structure a deal or look at a business to give money in AngelList today, Mm -hmm. right? It's become democratized and commoditized, Mm -hmm. meaning anybody could do it. And there's a set playbook everybody follows. In private business land, there's no playbook. Whenever there's no playbook, you can make more money. Well, okay. So that that leads to an interesting point. Next part of this, I had questions on content marketing, social media, growing audiences and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've been like more active on Twitter and stuff. One, I noticed uh, around 2020, everyone started getting on Twitter just because they had nothing to do and they were at home. Oh yeah, that makes perfect it, sense. I felt like it was like a different platform. It's like something changed. Uh, David Perel, who was interviewed before, and he's really big on Twitter. He mentioned something interesting that in 2018, 2019, Twitter changed from like this uh, chronological feed to an algorithmic feed. Um, I wasn't paying too much attention, so I didn't follow that. But all of a sudden you can go from just like your network of friends 
to the feed would show you to the whole world potentially. And that's when things started changing on Twitter and more, more people got on it. And so I started doing that. And what I noticed was a lot of company, the people that are trying to get investors, they don't want your money anymore because of, of exactly what you said. Money's so easy. You could raise money anywhere right now. What they want is your audience. So uh, actually, this is kind of interesting. I don't know if it's public. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, like Copy AI, when, that was, uh, when I put some money in this one company, this writing company, um, they were also like, well, we kind of don't really need your money. We, we, want, we, want, the, we want you and we also want your audience, right? Because that's like kind of a, a clone audience. And what they were also doing is taking small checks from these poor TikTokers, and they were like teenagers, but they were talking about productivity software, and they were actually selling copies of the software. And so they're like, we don't need like Sequoia, I don't know if that's an example, but like we don't need like these big investors. We can just take smaller ones with actual audiences that actually move product. And so I thought that was interesting. So that's kind of where content marketing comes in. I'm sure now that you're like growing pretty big on social media, you must get more deal inflow or people reaching out being like, hey, I saw you on this podcast. Can I have a business? I have Bob's Burgers business. Can you come in? Does oh, yeah. that happen like a lot more now at All scale? The time. I mean, I think that was one of the, so the first reason I got online is because I was probably bored and I wasn't traveling yeah. anymore. <laughs> and then the second reason I got online was because it's very annoying to go chase deal flow. Like anything, it's annoying to chase clients. It's annoying to chase chase, I don't know, employees, whatever it is. Mm. And I wanted them to come to me instead of me having to chase them. So I was like, how would mm. we do that? Oh, okay. I seem cool on the internet for whoever my target audience is. And then they might come to me and I don't have to go after them. That was my thesis. And so I started doing that. And then I started getting a ton of deal flow. Like one of the deals that I'm invested in is fold laundry here. It's like a wash and fold. So if you don't want to fold and do your own laundry, they'll like come to your apartment or building or whatever, and they'll go uh, clean it for you. And I invested in that business because I put out there a pretty big tweet thread about laundromats. Mm. And they were like, how about the fact that most laundromats only have a 30% utilization, like the machines only run 30% of the time. Mm -hmm. What if we could take it to 70%? I was like, cool. How would you do that? And they're like, we add a wash and fold to it. And so, and then what if we buy a software system to lay on top of it? And I was like, that's kind of cool. So I went and met with the guys and they, same thing. They like didn't really need the money. And so I said, well, I'm going to make you give me the money because I want a big chunk of the company, but mm. also, uh, Let's structure a deal and we'll share with the audience. So I think it goes back to Naval. Wasn't Naval the one? Yeah. Who talked about the four types of leverage, mm -hmm. you know? And and I think this fourth type of leverage, which is audience, and the other four were capital, label, code. yeah, labor, capital, code, and then audience. Mm -hmm. And this fourth one is maybe one mm -hmm. of the most powerful I've ever seen uh, because it's permissionless. Uh, you don't have to code or anything like that. It's, exactly. It's pretty awesome. It, it's kind of funny, like the people that will reach out to you on Twitter just because you post stuff. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you think. I actually, I was actually talking to uh, one of my head writer guys and I was like, I wonder if there's a way to make a living just fucking around on Twitter. Because <laughs> like, I, I kind of do a lot of that already. And I was going to say, isn't it, that what we do? It is kind of what we do already. I was just like, <laughs> I'm not far off, but I was just like, I wonder if that's like an actual thing. I think it kind of is. Yeah. So anyways, well, I guess we'll talk about newsletters in a second and, and how fucking around on Twitter is actually like right up that alley. Um, so what are some key ways you've actually grown your own audience um, yeah. on social media platform? And we'll go through the, the different ones, but what are some key ways you've grown? Or did you try to grow or just naturally grow? What happened? No, I think people would tell you they just naturally grow or full of shit. I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm always <laughs> like, there's no way. Nobody just like posted one thing, that was it, and they continued to grow. Like you have to work at it. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, for me... 
first I just started posting stuff out to friends, but then there were a couple things that gave me a little bit of major boost. Actually, another one of our mutual friends now, Sam, I was posting in his Facebook group mm-hmm. and I, I like to draft off the cultural conversation. So, you know, say that, um, yeah, I don't know. People always seem to be interested in cash flow and making money, which is one of the things we talk about at Contrarian Thinking and weird ways to do that. Um, and so I would put together little value add posts in his Facebook group that were basically like, here's this business. It's called Glamping and you can buy a piece of land for $10,000 near a national park and then put campsites on it for $0 and you can make $1,500 a month. And here's this woman, Kate, who did it. Here's exactly how she did it. If you guys think that's interesting, I could always drop the link to the article in it. And so um, I think drafting off the cultural conversation and stealing other people's audiences was basically what worked well for me at first. Hmm. But I did it in a way that I think, you could ask him, was enough value where people weren't like, ew. No, I saw saw you in the group. I'm part of that group. Yeah. Yeah. So that actually gave me like huge lift. And I did that in a few different groups, like bigger pockets, Sam's group. Um, And I'm like pretty lazy. I think we've talked about this Mm -hmm. before. So I'm always looking for how could I do this with the least amount of effort to the highest ROI on my time. Mm. And I don't always get there, but I'm trying to Mm. get there. And so I think those Facebook groups are a great way to do it. Huh. Interesting. So, okay. So you actually took some effort to actually try to do it. Did you, did you make a goal of like, I'm going to try to grow or was it just kind of like a, yeah, for sure. like, I'm, I'm seeing the benefit from this. I'll keep doing it. No, I'm very competitive. I wanted to hit 10,000 subscribers in 30 days oh. once I realized that it was a thing. So I wrote a blog post on this. It's on country and thinking you can see it. And then I documented every single day. What did I do? And so it basically was like day one, get a website, you know, day two, tell mom to send it to her PTA friends, like, you know, <laughs> day three. And and I did, I tried every sort of ridiculous thing I could think of. Um, and then I would note, okay, well, how many subscribers came from that? 50 subscribers, 100 subscribers. Um, I think a couple of things that worked well is I, I, like, I think people always send me their, you were just at a two-year-old's birthday party this week, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't ever want to go to a two-year-old's birthday party until I have a two-year-old. Like, no interest whatsoever. All my girlfriends know. They, like, don't invite Cody to the baby shower because she's not coming. I'll send a gift. And uh, and so if they're going to send me their two-year-old baby party invite, I'm sure it was lovely, whoever it was. But, um, <laughs> but I'm going to send them a notification that I'm building a business baby. So I basically, like, sent it out to all my friends, and they could opt in. But everybody that I have ever conversated on, in any point in my life, I basically sent it to them and said like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Here's why. Here's how I'd like you to be involved. Would you be interested in coming along for the ride? And, uh, you know, and if I've ever sent you a baby, you better get on this oh list. My God. Worst party guest ever. <laughs> like, can you come to my two-year-old's baby? How about no. you subscribe to my newsletter? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's fair. Okay, actually. so let's, let's talk about social media platforms. Where are you seeing the action? Um, so, okay, so first of all, so I did some stalking. So Instagram, you have something like 50K followers. Twitter, 81K Ironically, TikTok, exactly the same number, 81K. LinkedIn, 21K. I don't know. Like with Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook. I, I guess I left that out. I forgot about that one. I don't even know what we have on there, but yeah. Yeah. Where are you seeing action? Is it all of the above? Is it one that you really care? Like if you have to kill all of them, but keep one. Yeah. Is there... Well, actually, Noah told me in the beginning when I was looking at them, he's like, pick one platform, do it only. And I was like, great idea. No. Um, Yeah. uh, (laughs) One of them all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the reason I did that is because I was was like, I don't know which one I'm good at. I don't really, I wasn't very social media-y prior. Like, you know, like everybody else, I'd post whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. Um, And so I think it's actually important to have multiple platforms. 
because you don't want to get kicked off one or, you know, have something happen with one. So yeah. I would actually say don't do just do one. That said, Twitter by far. So actually the numbers are this. Twitter brings in the most newsletter subscribers of anything out there. And mm. I think Twitter also brings the highest sophistication level, which is weird for me to think about in newsletter subscribers. But that is how by far I've connected with most of the interesting humans is like Twitter. Hmm. The second biggest one for us is TikTok of all mm. of them. And I just have been on TikTok for maybe 60, 75 days. And TikTok is a viral machine. Like when it hits, it's just so powerful. The conversion rate from the people who click on my newsletter link at TikTok to actually subscribe is 42%. Hmm. How crazy is that? Twitter, it's like 2.53%. So we're probably not optimized there. And then Instagram, I think, is the best for conversions. So right now we have like a paid newsletter and we have a community. Um, and those are really the only things I offer on the internet. Um, but uh, but. Instagram actually allows you to build the best relationship, I think, with the user and actually convert them because of the DM ability in there. So you can actually have people that communicate, like, what are you looking for? What are you trying to do inside of your DMs? We're experimenting now with hiring somebody that's uh, that's all they do. Mm. And so that's how I see those three. LinkedIn is just kind of like we post there, yeah. uh, but I don't really have a strategy for it. Uh, but if I had to grow really fast on something it would be TikTok because it's by far the easiest right now. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's in that growth phase. That exactly like all, right. Yeah. Like Twitter was in a growth phase. YouTube was in a growth phase and then it kind of falls out. Oh, they get too crowded and then they, you know, they stop showing as much. All exactly. That stuff. Interesting. TikTok. Huh. Yep. And it's the least production. So like TikTok actually devalues highly produced content in mm -hmm. my opinion. So like, you know, YouTube, you actually need pretty well edited videos and stuff. Mm -hmm. But for TikTok, if you're like, hey, what's up? dance to this music, point around a little bit, could go massively viral, and it took you two seconds to film on here. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think it's... Now, I think... That I heard somebody told me that the average YouTube subscriber is worth 25 TikTok subscribers. Mm -hmm. So like the value of them is quite a bit lower. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a bud who makes $6 million a year on TikTok, on his Discord channel, and he's 24 years old. Wow. And I was like, I'm doing it wrong, man. Wow. I know. Yeah, there's going to be all these like, uh, oh, this TikTok. You, you used to hear about like YouTube stars. Now it's all TikTok. I think that's right. It's funny how that, that tide changes. I think that's right. Um, let's talk about, uh, so writing. Obviously, like writing's a big thing. So uh, you said you recently had a conference. You had all these CIA people here and they had some persuasion stuff. Is there anything that you, you've applied to writing that they that they had? Oh, yeah. I was actually, I'm writing a blog about it for this this Thursday, actually. Oh, nice. um, yeah, sort of the 10 lessons I distilled from them. Although I think I have like 47 lessons. Well, the, the first thing I think is, and this is writing, but... It's a little bit of data analytics too. So um, I sat down with the guy, John, when I first met him. And what was amazing is if we were sitting down like this, you've mm -hmm. kind of done this because you've stalked my background too. But if you pretended like this wasn't here, right? <laughs> yeah. And if I pretended like I knew nothing about you, but then we started having these conversations and then I was like, oh, Neville, like maybe I see Neville, Steve Jobs or Walter Isaacson. So I'm like, I maybe like drop like, oh, when I read that last Walter Isaacson book, or if I could find out from the internet what your favorite book was, or if I could like drop in these things that make you and me be identifiable where mm. you're like, oh, that's my favorite book too. And you're like, oh, really? That's your favorite book too? 
That's one thing I don't think we apply to writing enough, hmm. and me in particular. So I've started to say, what are my readers or listeners or however we want to say, what are some of their favorite things that when they're reading, they're going to identify themselves in my writing? And can I think about it almost like somebody from the CIA would where I could profile them? And so data analytics starts to become interesting because if you realize that 40% of your listeners like to also listen to Jocko Willink's podcast, and then I drop in there, not that, that would be too direct, but something like, um, you know, uh, relentless excellence or whatever. He has like some tagline that's like, just don't give up, but fancier sounding. And I like dropped that in and said like, you know, last time I was listening to Jocko this, they're going to identify themselves with me at an increased level that will lead to more subscriptions, referrals, and conversions. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I bet they had a lot of stuff. I actually, I read some of your stuff on it. You, you post on LinkedIn or something like that. Oh, sorry, sorry, uh, uh, Instagram. Oh, okay. The, the CIA thing. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, you we, probably we, didn't yeah, make it. But. Yeah, we, we repurpose both. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I was looking through some of those. Um, anything else you learned from the CIA people about writing specifically? That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Um, well, also, I think for writing, the other thing that I learned was um, less is more, which I think is really yeah. re relative to writing. Um, she said, uh, what did she say in particular? The chatty ones also often lose. The yeah. chatty ones often lose, which I really like that in writing too, because the more verbose you are, sometimes you think you're fancier, yeah. but then you lose them. Um, I, the other thing I thought was relatively interesting for me is that they would say things like, um, um, you know, get off the X was one line that she had. X? Get off the X like this. And what she meant by get off the X was when something bad's coming at you, the most humans, I looked it up about 27% of humans freeze if something bad is coming at them. They stop like this. Mm -hmm. uh, fight or flight is actually more secondary. It's harder for us to do. And so um, what I thought was interesting is with the get off the X, I think that leads itself to writing a lot because we want people to get off the X and make moves in writing. Like most of us aren't writing just for them to listen to our writing and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. we, want it, we want them to unfreeze. And so I thought about it from a writing perspective. How could I get somebody to get off the X, not freeze and sort of like mentally masturbate about it, but take action? And so one of the ways that I was writing about that lately is like more of these calls to action and links at points of high friction. So like when you say something like, I don't know. Remember back when, uh, you know, your mom and dad didn't have enough money to buy you something at Christmas. You know, you remember what they, that felt like around the holidays when you had that one present you wanted and nobody else uh, and everybody else got something that Christmas, but you didn't. Some friction point like that. Mm -hmm. And then planting after that a way for them to get off the X, a way for them to not have that happen to them again. Interesting. Never and heard I thought a term that was like cool. That. Yeah, yeah. They have a lot of, and you know, you're good at this too, I think, but I wish I could teach more people. I don't know the right way to do this. Most people like playbooks, step one through 10, follow them, X happens, right? Mm -hmm. But the real magic lies when you listen to somebody like that CIA person and you listen to somebody like me talk about different boring businesses. And then you listen to Neville talk about copywriting. And then you triangulate what is useful between the three. And then you find that thing that nobody else is doing or talking about. And so that's why I like to bring people like that to the conference or read, I don't know, War and Peace before writing about laundromats. Hmm. I've also noticed it's, it's, it's slightly different depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking to like um, an executive or something like that, you can tell a story that he relates to or something like that. But if you're talking to a really technical engineer, yeah. it's sometimes a little bit different. But I do agree the X, like get them to move to a CTA. Um, 
let's talk about the journalist background. Um, so that was like what 2008? Yes. Time frame? Yeah, 2007, like 2008. So slightly different era. Like I know if it's like the, the iPhone came out in like 2007 or 8 or something like that. Whoa, is that true? God, that ages me. Yeah, yeah, it actually yeah. came out in 2008. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because I don't remember having an iPhone in Mexico when I was a journalist. You're right. Yeah. And so so journalists, did you have to kind of like untrain yourself to write like that or were you writing well then? That's a good question. Um because I used to write magazine or sorry, newspaper articles for our school newspaper. Yeah. And it was like a real different style of writing. Yeah. Well, I think so. I, I started out writing. Well, I was trained as a journalist in school. So there you got to write long form investigative content, right? So you're mm -hmm. like trying to pull the thread on something interesting happening in the world. And so um, I actually think that taught me a lot. It taught me how to say like, not this wall is brown, but like the wall looks like leaves of grass in the wind or something, right? Oh, nice. Which is like, <laughs> yeah, Good. it kind of does. I mean, it's called grass cloth. But um, <laughs> anyway, so like that's what uh, that type of journalism taught me to do. And then I went and was a crime beat reporter where they basically, mm. you know, all I could do was write like, man, stabbed, 47, with baby, you know? Like, oh, <laughs> shit, like, I want to click on that subject line, right? And so if you can pair this, like, beautiful phrase with the punchiness of beat cop reporting, then I think you can get something sort of interesting. But then what was missing to me was, I, I'm, a, I'm opinionated, I guess, some opinions. And so as you're a journalist, that you weren't allowed to say that, right? It was... Mm. And well, now everybody does that. But back then that was taboo. You weren't supposed to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And so then the third thing that sort of leveled in that you're talking about, I had to learn how to put my feeling and emotion into the writing. And I got that through reading novels and being like, oh, this is like beautiful. And I feel this way about it. And I'm going to put it in. Hmm. Um, but yeah. I feel like people revere that investigative journalism era. Yeah. Right. When like a, a reporter would take like three months to like uncover some crime ring and then like one article in the Tuesday's newspaper would be about it. Like that, that seemed like they were taking this, all this work and distilling it down. And we don't really get that. You get like more like live updates. I don't know if it's better or worse, but then you get a lot of opinion. Yeah. Uh, I depending think it's on worse. The person. Yeah. yeah. I'm really glad I actually got out of journalism when I did because of that exact reason. Dying right when the iPhone came out. Yeah. That yeah. was like the beginning of the end. The, exactly. the internet started uh, messing everything up. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, exactly. I think the ability to just better. go yeah. after clickbait is not what you should be doing when it comes to reporting factual news, right? Mm -hmm. That should not be the goal. But just by the way that ev everything in life is about incentives, right? Like, mm -hmm. you, you know, Pavlov's dog, you want the dog to bark, <laughs> you know, or the dog to salivate, you give him the reward and he does the action and you keep giving him the reward. And so if the incentive is off like it is in in news i think it can go really sideways but the other thing about that is it's very it's a little traumatizing to write really deep horrible stories about humanity and so there was another part of me that was like i can also see where these journalists go a little sideways because imagine this neville like a terrible thing happens right like hurricane hits daycare center all the babies die right <laughs> like and and as you're as you're a journalist what's your initial reaction it's not like oh my god that's terrible it's like i want to cover that i want to go to the hurricane baby farm and that is a terrible feeling after a while as a human. And so uh, so I, I'm glad I didn't stay in that industry. Sorry, I have a funny visual of like a tornado and babies right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Super babies, hopefully. Yeah, that's, uh, that is totally true. Uh, I'm involved in some political stuff and I can tell you, like, I don't like it. 
I don't like it at all. You have to be exposed to all this stupid political stuff. It's all fighting and everything. And it really does divide people into two sides. Like it just becomes like you're on this side or that side. It, like really no one's like in the middle or I guess you can be, but like the real popular people always like pick a side. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk about sitting down and writing. You said you're pretty ADD. Um, you don't really seem like it, right? Do yeah, you? I am. Definitely yeah? squirrel. I mean, I can, if I'm interested in something and there are no distractions, I'm right here with you. Yeah, you seem super focused on stuff. Yeah, but if there's any distraction, my, my husband, for instance, who you know, like he doesn't have that because in the military, imagine doing what he did at night. It's like he would never sleep. Somebody would be coming in, waking him up. They would go, they would come back in. So he get, would really get used to transitions and mm -hmm. that like blank space that happens between transitions. Mm -hmm. I'm not that type of creative. So for me to get out a really good piece of content, I have to like labor and agonize over it. And mm -hmm. if you interrupt me, I will be 37, you know, windows open later on my computer. And then like, ah, I have to get back to this thing. And so, um, the most important thing for me, at least with my ADD brain is like, I have to limit all distractions basically. Mm -hmm. And I have to allow the art room to breathe. Um, and I think for some reason, for most of us, that seems like an egotistical thing to do. Like I literally had to say to Chris, do not speak to me from 6.30 to 10 a.m. in the morning, unless I'm outside my office. Don't knock on the door, don't bring me coffee, don't be nice, like nobody talk to me. Because if not, I will get distracted by everything that's happening in the day. And I think however you are as a creative, if I have one piece of advice, if you're anything like me, is just like know thyself a little bit, mm -hmm. and then it's okay to rearrange the world to work around that a little bit. Even if it's just, I know that I write like this, and so I need this amount of time, and it'll be at 12 a.m. So do you say like by 6 p.m. I'm going to have this done no matter what? I don't put those kind of timelines on myself. I just give myself uninterrupted time. Maybe I sit in there and I mess around. You like on hours. a Google Doc? Yeah, I'm on a Google Doc without internet. Without internet? Without so internet. So you like turn off the Wi-Fi? Yeah, or I just turn off the, you know, I put it on airplane mode on my computer. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. I have thought of that for some reason. Yep. And then if I need to research stuff, because that's what usually gets me distracted, I just write it down on a little notepad. And then I'm like, ah, I can't remember what this quote came from, from this author. Like, write that down and I'll look that up later. Um, and it skips a lot of the rabbit holes for me that are really just my brain not wanting to be focused on what, kind of like meditation, you know? Mm. You're supposed to be on this and then it's like, choo, choo, choo. And if instead I could just write that down on a piece of paper, then I can stay yeah. zen. Like, I don't want to sound like some back in my day kind of thing, <laughs> but back in my day, I mean, like, especially when you got on a plane and there was no internet, you, like you get this, like these brilliant, sometimes brilliant things, like these really good pieces where you just had like nothing to do for seven hours. Yeah. And you're like, I'm going to write this article. It just had like time to ponder. And for me, I like it when people watch me work. That's that's totally something like everyone in this audience knows that like that's how I work Like if I co-work with you, I won't co-work with you across the table I'll be like we have to sit on the same side because I think <laughs> you can see my screen So on a plane other people can see your screen or I think they can So I want to look like I'm not screwing around and I'll actually sit there and work So they'll be like that guy's a hard worker. Oh, that, that's hysterical. Yeah, and so anyways the plane has all these things no internet concentrated time Really nothing else to do and I'm constantly being your screens constantly being observed by someone I think and so um, I would always get these great articles out and now it's like you just don't have that like there's no time that you don't have internet there's no time that you don't have like the easier distractions yep I agree with that I think that my times are well it's, I'm always better when there's not other people around and mm. I'm always better when I'm not getting emails so I write really well in the nighttime I write really well in the morning mm. um, and then also which doesn't lend itself to the morning as much if I can have like one to maximum two glasses of wine 
then <laughs> it like allows me to chill out enough to just let it flow and not worry about all the task oriented stuff. I think the hardest part about being a creative and then building a business and as your business gets bigger or your creative brand or whatever it is gets bigger is just, I really think art needs room to breathe. Just like some plants need more sunlight and more air around them, right? Mm. And so the more tasks that get on my plate, the less interesting my content gets. And so again, at first that felt selfish, but now my team knows like the goal is less Cody input on most things. Like think about mm. what she would want and then back her out of it. And I don't know if this is true, but I heard that Tony Robbins team, one of their top metrics they track for all of his uh, events is his talk time. How much time does Tony actually have to speak at the event? And so I think about that like Cody brain time. How much brain time do I have to allocate to admin tasks? Because they drain and they don't fill for me. Hmm. Very, very interesting. It's fun hearing about people's creative writing processes. Uh, ours is like totally different. I prefer people watching. Um, do you write to investors to close deals? Like, do you write emails to them? Like, I would like to do a deal. Yeah. Well, I think so. I used to... Uh, raise millions and then billions of dollars as an investor. And so my last company, which is a private equity firm in cannabis, we ended up with like $250 million in assets. Before that, I had a multi-billion dollar asset management firm. And that doesn't mean it's worth that. It means that's how much money we brought in. And then we get a percentage of that, just so everybody knows. But um, <laughs> that'd be rad. Um, but uh, so early on, I realized, again, this lazy metric. So the way that people raise money and when you do it in financial means is like basically you go around to a bunch of financial advisors or pensions, endowments, whatever, and you knock on their doors or you cold call them and you try to get them to meet with you. Mm -hmm. But you have to actually go there, sit at the place, talk to the person, have the steak dinner, and then you do it 472 million times and then you want to kill yourself at the mm -hmm. end of it because <laughs> you said the same thing nonstop. And so I got really tired of that and I was like, how could we make this not so excruciating? And so with my team, I basically crafted like a marketing funnel which anybody in any other industry would be like, snore, like we've been doing this since 2008. But in finance, they don't do this. People are just not good at email marketing in finance. Hmm. And it's because of a couple things. One, you can't have mass emails in finance. So like you have to be really careful. It's called general solicitation. We'll skip all the regulatory stuff, but there's a little side note there. But I got really good at targeted messages to big investors. And so I would basically say, we're not going to do the whole roadshow thing. We're just going to actually send emails and you're going to get interested from the emails. Interesting. That's so that, I mean, you probably wrote a couple of emails and brought in millions of dollars. I love that. That's yep. awesome. It's kind of like your words at scale. I don't know why more people don't use email for that. In fact, some of the some of the investor or pitches I've got that are that are really good that I've done, it's kind of like valued at this, blah blah blah. It's like two sentences or or maybe more. It's like in, and you're either in, and they don't even expect a response. Which is like, are you in or not? And you're like, mm, yeah. It, I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. I agree. Um, the, okay, kind of switching gears. Uh, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but I, I'm very curious <laughs> about you specifically. Uh, definitely not trying to suck up or anything, but like I've noticed like some of the people, the, the women specifically. So I, the title of this is called the woman thing. I didn't know what else to call it. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm genuinely curious how to approach this as a dude. Um, some of the women in the entrepreneur space sometimes seem a little soft. Okay. Uh, sorry. And I'll see men like at conferences 
not give them the same scrutiny on their business ideas as they would with dudes. Like if a little Indian kid comes up to you and he's a guy, you'd be like, that's a fucking stupid idea. But if this cute white girl comes up to you, you're like, you know, just good for you, blah, blah, blah. But you're just like, but that's a stupid idea. Like no one's telling her. And I feel like they're robbing some of that, uh, some of the, the good stuff that the guys get, that they're able to get harder feedback. And so then they'll go down the path of this stupid idea for a much longer time, which they could have got feedback, got their feelings hurt slightly, but then move on. With you, you seem different. Like, I remember the first time I even met you, I was like, you didn't seem soft. Um, like, what is that? Like, why, am I wrong in this assessment? No, I mean, I think, um, I, I, thank you. Um, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think I agree with you, first of all. One, I have a couple pet peeves. Like, I got this deck the other day, and it was like, Blazing Babes was the name. And it was for like a new VC fund, and I was immediately like, I'm not reading it. This thing is going in the trash can immediately. Why are we calling it Blazing Babes? By the way, it's pink and it has what appears to be rhinestones on it. Like everybody's <laughs> fired. Like we're not playing that game anymore. Um, and so I agree with you on that. And they don't get that feedback. The, the couple of reasons why, I think. Um, for you guys, it's all about socialization. Think about the age at which you started to have friends be like, yeah, your mom is so fat. She, you know, right. Or like, mm. I'm going to do this or like, man, Neville, you, I don't know, something ridiculous. You're so fat now. Or like all, all these things that you say to men, you guys say to each other and you normalize it. And it's like just water under the bridge. You don't even think about it. Now imagine you go say that to a woman like, oh my God, you look like uh, you got stuffed in a old popsicle tube in that tube top. Like, <laughs> right, like immediate never friends again, not going to happen, right? And so I think part of it is women are not used to this aggressive feedback loop, which mm -hmm. is actually a really negative thing because then men won't give it. But why won't men give it? Because women, if you were to get it, we're going to be like, oh, this guy's terrible and he's the worst and you know, never work with him. And so you don't have any positive incentive if we go back to people and do things because they're incentivized to give hard feedback. Because if you do, you're seen as a dick, right? Mm. And this woman isn't going to use the feedback anyway. So it's like, you know, devil, why, why the devil would you do it? Um, for me in particular, I, you know, I, I worked on trading floors when I was really young and you can't really work on trading floors and be in finance and work at Goldman and all the stuff that I did and not have some of that. The other part is like, uh, I joke about this with my husband. He always, he has this saying that's super annoying and uh, it's every time we're doing something hard and I don't want to do it. And he'll be like, Cody, are we good white sharks or are we great white sharks? And every time I'm like, I want to murder you. Yeah. Now that you know him, this oh, is extra geez. funny. So annoying. Um, but he does have this philosophy, which we've in, like kind of instilled in ourselves as a family. And then is actually the motto for our newsletter, which is symbolize the mind, make savage the body, build the bank account. And so that mm. make savage the body part, I actually think is one of the most important things we can do. And that's why we do kickboxing, jujitsu, surfing, skydiving, hunting, hiking, because then I don't care if some Indian tech nerd says to me, your idea sucks. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, I'm not dying. You didn't shoot me. Like, we can go have a drink anyway. I don't care. It's not that big of a deal. And so I think in the, today's world, which is like a totally different rant for a different day, but like we're all too soft and mm. everybody has to start thinking about the African proverb, which is, do you want to pave the world in leather or wear sandals? And I think like, wear the sandals. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. So if there are women listening out there, what I would say is like toughen up uh, physically and it's amazing how much you can toughen up mentally. And mm. if you just apply that, I think everything starts to change. Very interesting. Um, 
I'm going to name drop real quick. I just had dinner with Peter Thiel recently. Oh, I wanted to ask you I know. That. Yeah, I'll tell you offline because okay. I'm not Thank like God. sharing a lot yes. of details online. But one of the cool things, I was, I was kind of proud of this because he knows so much and he's like, there's no name you could drop that he's better. He's just like, yeah, I know the president. Like, like he just knows every, everything's better with him. But the one thing I feel like he got from me is I read a tweet that said, if you notice the people you know that are the most jacked, women and men, not just in shape, but like strong muscles, He's like, you'll notice their politics are generally very libertarian or Republican, kind of like uh, self-sufficient type people. And I remember trying to run that through my mental Rolodex thinking like, do I know any jacked people who are like super socialists or like everyone should be free, blah, blah, everything should be free, like anyone like that persuasion. And no, I couldn't find a single example. And it goes along exactly with what you said of like, if you get jacked or your, your body is savage, you tend to think in a certain way. It's more tough. And I think we were theorizing in the dinner of like why that was. And it's kind of like, well, me and you genetically are roughly the same. And I, you chose for the last three years to work out and eat well and sacrifice. And that's why your body looks awesome. And I'm a big old fatty because I ate Twinkies every day. I could do what you did. I just didn't. So, so you who put in all the work is just like, well, I mean, okay, you could do it, but you didn't. So you don't get it. Yeah. And so that's, that's super interesting. Interesting answer. I didn't expect that. Oh, I love that. Well, also, don't you think who was I was thinking about it with the metaverse like our I think your friends with Sean Purry, too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he wrote that whole metaverse tweet and uh -huh. I like agreed with it and then I hated it, too. And and basically his theory was like, we're already in the metaverse and whatever, blah, 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 which is a, I kind of can see it. But I was like, what better way to get people in the metaverse than to make 61% of the population obese? So you're unhealthy and it doesn't feel that good to be in the real verse to make more people than ever on antidepressants, because that doesn't make you want to go hang out with yourself every day, to actually increase the amount of people who... Um, are divorced to like 52%. So they're not like uh, happy in that way to decrease the amount of people that are having sex, even at a young age. It's like, oh, well, they just make the world less and less fun and interesting. And then of course you want to be in the metaverse. But like, mm. if it's actually up to me and I like feel what it feels like to get the endorphin rush of like doing a really funny, goofy hit class or something, mm. and then getting in an ice bath and that intensity. And then the sauna, like we both do at the gym. Like I choose that every day versus how I feel at the end of looking at Twitter. Like this is infinitely more satisfying than that, but not if not if you're unhealthy, unhappy, unwealthy, uh, and you know, not having sex. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, okay, cool. So let's do let's do a quick lightning round uh, like at the it. end. So um, if you were brand new to business, what would you be doing? Hmm. I definitely would have been online sooner. I think that was a major miss. Uh, I love, I mean, think about what we get to do for a living. We basically get to think about things, write them down, share them with people, and then that turns into money. Like, that's wild when you think about it. Mm. Most people have to do so much more than that. So I would be doing exactly uh, what I'm doing right now. I just would have skipped all the drama of making millions for other people and working in finance for so long. Um, I think that would be my goal. Hmm. Okay, next question. Uh, if you're going to start a sweaty, unsexy business like you talk about, which one would you pick right now? I'm really into miniaturizing things. Like for instance, um, have you ever seen an apartment complexes? This is a weird one. Apartment complexes outside, like Nick Nick's apartment, Nick Ray's apartment. Mm -hmm. Outside of it, there are like these Amazon lockers. Yeah. Have you seen those? Yeah. And you like press the buttons and then it opens up weird doors and the boxes come in and out. I thought that was fascinating. So I looked into the model and I was like, can I own one of those and like make money every time those are utilized? And I don't know the answer to that, but I'm working on it. And then my other friend, Lisa, owns all these mini mailboxes. So they're like 
you know, FedEx, UPS, except it's Lisa's mailbox store. Yeah. And those mini mailboxes are just like big storage units, but on a micro scale, because everybody is doing this, we're all contractors now or 1099s and they need a, a an address to go to. Hmm. So I like the miniaturization of these big things down into little businesses that are still passive-ish with not that many employees, hmm. um, but you're still renting space in a weird way. Hmm. Your your thing is uh, your th- your your thesis is brilliant of like one to zero employees. Yeah, seems good. Just not wrangling a lot of labor. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Let's say you were brand new. How would you grow a Twitter following? Mm. I would write tweets only for the biggest accounts that care about what I care about. Like I think that's one other thing we did in the beginning is I was like, what would Nick Huber find interesting? Like, what mm. would Sean Purry want to comment on? Um, and I wouldn't be annoying, like just at them in mm-hmm. it. I would just create content that I only thought a few big accounts would really, really like. And it was that smart for them to be intrigued by it. Uh, and then eventually they'll comment on my stuff and they'll be interested in it. And maybe they'll repost or reshare. That's what I would do. That's awesome. And then, um, last question, if you were trying to build a newsletter again, would you do it? Oh yeah. It's worth it. Oh yeah. I would a hundred percent do it, but I would, like so many people don't spend the time learning what not to do first. They just like fumble around and like I would take 37 courses on how to build a newsletter mm-hmm. and I would steal everybody's ideas first mm-hmm. and I would focus 90% on distribution and 10% on writing to start and mm-hmm. I would get as many people in the audience as possible um, because most people just want to write and think their writing's great but they don't want to actually do the work of selling which is marketing. Nice. Well, that was actually a really fun conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, how can people find you? Website, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok? I mean, all the things, but I think the best one's probably contrarianthinking.co. That's our free newsletter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm Cody Sanchez on Instagram and Cody underscore Sanchez on Twitter. And we'll link all that stuff in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're the man. Appreciate it.